Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margo, and this is Military Murder, a show where I discuss cases involving military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Hi, everyone. Today's episode is going to be different from most of my other episodes. Today, I will not be giving you a murder story. I realized that recently I have covered cases where The perpetrator was clearly suffering from some form of mental health issue. After I tell many of these stories, we're often left with more questions than answers. Like, why did this happen? And guess what? Today, you will hear an amazing conversation I had with two forensic psychologists. Now, they're not going to give us answers to the questions that we have after some episodes, but they will give us a little bit of insight. Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott have impressive resumes and they agreed to come on the show to chat PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, and how it relates to the veteran and law enforcement community. Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott actually have their own podcast called LA Not So Confidential. So once you're done listening here, you can head on over to their podcast and continue listening. So of course, I have to give my warning that the opinions of my guests are not necessarily the opinions of military murder, or Mama Margo Productions. Also, nothing in this episode is meant to be medical or legal advice. I know, I know, that warning is something that we always hear in the beginning of the episode, but saying it again, just in case anyone forgot. Today, during our discussion, we get into some triggering topics, including discussions of PTSD symptomology and PTSD criteria. We chat about depression and suicide and intimate partner violence. So if this is something you'd rather not listen to, skip this episode. This is a very raw yet casual conversation. And listen, I'm not the best sound engineer, so I apologize for the sound quality. I tried my best and this was recorded over Zoom. All right, so let me just give you a brief rundown of the things that will be discussed in this episode. So we review the big question, what exactly is PTSD? The doctors tell us the criteria used to diagnose it. They dive into how best to approach the topic of mental health with a medical professional. We chat common symptoms and even uncommon symptoms. They give us a peek behind the curtain on what to expect once we do see a mental health professional. And they chat, you know, something that we don't ever talk about and it's how to find the professional that works for you. Additionally, they briefly discuss the interplay between PTSD and depression. Listen, we talk about everything in this episode. We talk about resiliency, grit, surviving and thriving with PTSD. And to be honest, without PTSD during a global pandemic, we get into the items that you can use in your toolbox to overcome some of life's hardest moments. The doctors also get into some other stuff like the misdiagnosis of PTSD and they talk about complex PTSD. And the docs were pretty gracious enough to answer some of my listeners' questions. One question in particular was, 
How can someone support someone suffering from PTSD? I am so very excited to be sharing this very candid conversation with all of you. Now, enough from me. Let's dig in with Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott from LA Not So Confidential. I just want to welcome LA Not So Confidential, um, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott. So I'm going to give them an opportunity to introduce themselves and kind of tell us a little bit about their background. So Dr. Shiloh, why don't you start? Okay. Thank you, Margo. We're happy to be here. I am one half of the podcast, LA Not So Confidential, that I do with my absolute best friend in the whole world. And we are both forensic psychologists in Los Angeles. And we have done a number of things in our, what we feel like is a short career, but have primarily focused in the areas of forensic psychology, which has included for me, law enforcement psychology, criminal psychology, working with offenders before they go into prison and after they get out, as well as a lot of the forensic issues that come up in terms of dual diagnosis, substance abuse disorders, mental health disorders in those general populations. And before I was a psychologist, I was a police officer myself. And I did that for seven years before switching careers. And then I started a podcast in 2017 with Dr. Scott. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your service as a police officer. That's pretty tough. It, it was a, I have to say a wonderful experience. Uh, I would not take it back for the world. And now I'm so privileged to be able to help support and serve officers at the agency that I'm at. And she's also comes from a family of law enforcement that I think too is an incredible factor in her background. That's awesome. So, you know, like the triggering things So we were actually just talking right before we started the podcast about how a lot of military things that affect the military community also affect the law enforcement community, but we can get into that in a little bit. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, Dr. Scott, you're up. I guess I'm next. So Shiloh and I met doing our internships at a forensic site. I went to a doctoral program after completing a master's in clinical psych. The doctoral program had an emphasis in family forensics, like expert uh, testimony, doing a custody evaluations, family evaluations, and kind of really honing in on that, that intersection between law and psychology. Um, previous to that, I had been working in entertainment for two decades. I had been a performer from a smaller town in Alabama, moved out uh, to Los Angeles, had a good run as a, uh, a performer, and then moved into uh, agency work. And then I was a, a casting director for a while and then ended up doing post-production. I mean, and it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful industry, very challenging. It's, um, as I often say, entertainment is a harsh mistress because there's only a small percentage that really make tons of money to have a quality lifestyle and a retirement. And I wasn't near that. I was having great time and paying my bills, but it was time to think like, you know, what do I want to do with the second half of my life? And, you know, I went to the first intro class uh, at my master's level education. And within 20 minutes, I was like, oh yeah, this is it. This is absolutely it. This is what I want to do. And then when I got into the doctoral work, I was even more turned on and more passionate. And then when I found the forensic work, that 
was even more exciting for me. So when I graduated, um, Shiloh and I stayed really very good friends and our families spend a lot of quality time together. But I went to start working in the California Department of Corrections. I was a, a prison psych for three years prior to coming back south to um, Los Angeles in order to work at a very large jail. In fact, it was the, the largest jail really in the world with the largest mental health program. It was L.A. County Jail. So I was there for several years. It was a fantastic experience. Then I became a law enforcement psychologist and then transitioned out of that opportunity into actually partnering with law enforcement to help address the needs of the, the community mental health issues that lead to altercations with police in our public. So what we're out there doing is we are following up after hospitalizations and after escalating events to make sure that people are linked to the services that they need in order to restore their quality of life. And it's a fantastic job. It's a fantastic job. And I'm incredibly lucky to have landed in it. Oh my gosh. Can I just say, I am, I feel like I'm in the presence of like amazingness right now. Y'all are so awesome. What I think is so interesting is you guys had like two careers, right? You guys did something and then you guys changed completely to something else. And, um, I'm sure you're aware, but in the military, I feel like a lot of military people have the same experience. They go into the military at 18 years old or between 18 and 25 years old. They do either a couple of years or a full 20, and then they kind of have like a second life, a second career. And so that is just amazing because y'all have actually done the same exact thing. It's crazy. I feel like I have had legit three careers, law enforcement, and then working with offenders and then now being in police and law enforcement psychology feels like three very distinct lives, really <laughs> professional lives. You know, the formula of our podcast really is forensic psychology and true crime and looking at the concepts that are really happening there. But it's also fun for us to bring a little bit of how is this depicted in the media? Because I think a lot of people, when they see it depicted, they, they kind of remember, they think like, oh, okay, I kind of know what that syndrome is or what that disorder is. And so we always try to highlight that in our episodes as well. One, to have a little fun with it. Two, to really let it crystallize for people. Or three, to say, no, that's actually what it, <laughs> what is not happening with someone with that disorder. And so Scott's background folds in nicely as well. So it's, it's, it's really a lot of fun. And we keep our show pretty casual, although we dive into some really clinical, tough areas. And we, what's been unbelievably humbling and exciting for us is in the four years now that we've been doing this with 80 very long episodes. I mean, we, we, the two of us between us, we can start talking and never stop. And we have gotten to know our listeners really well. And people have asked us like, hey, I'm thinking about this. Is this a, you know, how, how do I navigate even finding out if I want to do this? And, you know, we've, we have some of our listeners that have gone into this field because of listening to us. We have universities requiring listening to several episodes in order for credit in, in their psych programs. And then also Shiloh and I have opportunities where we speak to various programs across the country. And look, so you're saying like, I can't believe, I can't believe we're in this position. Like it's, it's completely surprises me every day, despite the fact, you know, we we're going on two decades now, really, since we started this journey. 
Awesome. So we're here today to talk about PTSD, which is a big mental health issue that affects a lot of military personnel. Can y'all at least uh, tell us what PTSD is? Because I never really dive into it in my episodes when I talk about someone being affected by PTSD. I just, I don't say, I don't want to say, I just assume everyone knows, but it would take me forever and I'm, I'm not qualified to basically say everything. So what exactly is PTSD? Sure. I, I think it's really important to lay this groundwork with everything we're going to talk about today. And I would even say, first off, I think just saying PTSD is appropriate for today. We're going to be talking about criteria and clinically, what does that mean? But I also want to acknowledge that are, there are a lot of survivors of trauma out there who prefer post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress syndrome. Mm. There's some talk of that possibly being changed in the DSM, which is the book from which we diagnose. Disorder feels very stigmatizing to a lot of folks. And I, I want to acknowledge that and honor that, even though I think we'll probably fall into the vernacular PTSD just because it rolls off the tongue. And clinically, that's what it is. That's what it's called. And that's how we would diagnose it or document it in some clinical notes or in an assessment with someone. And with the, the DSM, this book, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, basically lays out the criteria from which we would assess a client and say, are these certain things going on? And if so, then yes, we can diagnose them with it. So the criteria is basically three components. If we just really have to break this down to bare bones. The person first off has to be exposed to a traumatic event. So that means that either their own life was threatened or great bodily harm at least was threatened, or they witnessed that happening to somebody else. So it could be you yourself being in a terrible car accident where you thought you were going to die, or you witnessed a car accident where you thought that person was going to die. So that's number one. And really Trauma can be defined so many different ways, but for these purposes, that's what traumatic event means, the, the worst of the worst. The second component is that they then have to react to that event with intense fear, horror, or helplessness. Some people can be involved in those situations. I think it's somewhere like 70% of the population will experience a traumatic event at some time in their life, but it doesn't mean they're all going to react in that way. But if they do, then they're sort of on this pathway to potentially being diagnosed with PTSD. And then the third criteria is just about symptomology. What do they experience following the traumatic event and having that really strong negative reaction? And it's a number of symptoms that need to be met for at least a month. And I'll break down the symptoms because they have their own little categories too. But it has to be at least a month because these symptoms are completely natural and normal for anyone who experienced this to feel. It's just that if they extend beyond a month, this person might need a little bit more additional support to be able to figure out how to process what happened and start to heal from it. So the symptoms really fall into a few categories. The first one generally is called re-experiencing the event. And this is really the most common, especially that I see just anecdotally. I treat a lot of law enforcement and after they're exposed to a traumatic event, 
the most common thing that they are experiencing is what we call waking recollections. Just the incident is playing over and over again in their head. Now, sometimes they want to sort of analyze it. Like, what could I have done better? What went wrong? How can I learn from this? But I mean, like, you are not trying to think about it at all anymore. And it is still just popping up, playing over and over in your mind. So I think I I would encourage your listeners to think about, have they been exposed to a traumatic event? And were these playbacks of the incident happening for them over a period of time? Now, it can be just thoughts of it popping up in your mind like that. It could be nightmares and dreams start entering the subconscious, or it could be full-on flashbacks, which really is for the more severe types of exposure to trauma. So you might think military veteran, various exposures to combat and various traumas they might have that more severe end of the spectrum of re-experiencing the event, which would be a flashback where they fully feel like they are living in it again. So there's with all of these, of course, there's a spectrum there. Uh, the second category of symptoms is what I just call hypervigilance. So that person has more of a startle response to things that could sort of spook them. It could be sounds. It could be quick movements around them. And or they just feel on edge. For some reason, they feel like they are still in that place where their safety was at risk. And this is just a matter of chemicals that haven't rebalanced yet. When they were in that fight or flight arena, when the traumatic event was happening, certain chemicals are kicking on overdrive because we need them. And some are turning off because we don't need them in that moment. And when someone is still feeling hypervigilant afterwards, it means those have not balanced back out. So their brain is telling them your safety is still at risk. A very quick example, usually when I see officers after an officer-involved shooting, a lot of them will say, you know, a day or two after they go home and obviously the event's over and they're getting to rest and be home they go around and they check all the doors of their house because they're like, I just feel like, like something's going to happen or something's off. And I'm, I'm doing all the, even though I know, like I'm, I'm perfectly safe. They still feel like they have to do these behaviors. And hypervigilance is interesting because cops and military, they're all more hypervigilant than the normal population anyway, <laughs> but this would be above and beyond what is kind of normal for that person. There's two more. Avoidance is, I think, something that would be natural to any of us, just wanting to avoid triggers or remind you of the traumatic event. It could be people, places, things, smells, sights, all of that. It could be avoiding just wanting to talk about it for the one millionth time as well. So I I think that kind of makes sense to a lot of people. Like if, if you were involved in a traumatic event, For instance, we had a big hostage situation and shooting here in Southern California a few years ago, and it took place at a Trader Joe's. And there were people involved in that that were like, I can't go shopping at a Trader Joe's again or a Hawaiian print shirt. I want to avoid those. So you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And then the last one is really just this one was added pretty recently in the last versions of the DSM, but the person is just forever sort of changed in a negative way in the way they sort of experience the world, the way that they 
thinking or feelings. And I kind of think, well, of course they are. If you're going to be through something like this, then of course you're going to be a changed person forever. But usually it's something that's distressing to them or can be problematic. And maybe they would be in need of some more help through the process of healing. But it really depends on the person and what they sort of bring to the table, what their reactions are going to be like. And that's just the nature of the beast with trauma. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. So I have a question um, with regards to someone who may be experiencing some of these symptoms, maybe not all of them, but maybe some of them. Usually, you know, you start off going to your regular doctor, right? You go, you know, when, when you when you hurt your finger or you hurt your your toe, you go to the doctor and then they kind of diagnose you that way. How does someone who has PTSD, what's the general way that they would be diagnosed? Like what is what do they have to say to their doctor, which is kind of weird because you know, this is, this could be for even just depression or whatever. You go to the doctor and they're like, how are you? You're like, I'm fine. But how do you get past that? I'm fine to really say, listen, I'm not fine, but it's really hard to put into words because every time you want to say something, you just want to cry. Like, can you, can you explain that? Cause I can imagine that that's what a lot of my listeners may experience. I think it's important. That's a great question. Thank you. And it's really important to, to realize that there, there are two main points I want to make here. One is that we have a terrible stigma about mental health issues in this country. And we, you know, look, the brain is responsible for all sorts of processes that go on in our body, um, things that happen that we don't even know about. And that's one of the things that happens in PTSD is that you literally rewire the brain from a traumatic precipitating event. And when that happens, 
you feel out of control for any number of these combinations of symptoms that Shiloh was talking about. So as humans, we freaking hate being out of control, right? You know, you get a splinter in your finger. It's no big deal. You pull it out. If you cut your hand, it's not really a big deal because you're going to stitch it up. You're going to take some antibiotics, put a bandage on it. It's going to be fine. But when it comes to our mind and our emotions, all bets are off the table because we have a lot of shame about not being in control. And what's going to make it even worse is that we're talking about male populations within rigid hierarchical structures, such as law enforcement and military. These guys have it even worse because admitting something's wrong is going to be really difficult for them. That's why by the time they actually do go to a a professional, a doctor to talk about it, they're probably in really bad shape because they've been putting it off for a very long time. And going back to what Shiloh was talking about, those symptoms are going by this time to have built up to have really impaired the quality of life for the individual. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. I would add that the first thing that people are comfortable talking about is sleep, that their sleep is disrupted, that, you know, what's wrong with me, that that's a great indicator. It's a great question. And I think it's a great way to bring it up, whether it's with their regular doctor or they do end up seeing a mental health professional, because that person should then be able to ask more questions to start uncovering everything else. But I also had a a rookie cop recently. I was sitting down with some officers and he asked me such a great question. And he said, how does somebody know when they need to go to therapy? Exactly. And I said, you know what? You are the expert on you and you know, when you're off, you know, when the normal things that you're doing that normally work and help aren't working anymore. That's probably a great indicator to get in when the problem is small and not huge. Mm-hmm. And if we could get across to people in campaigns or, you know, um, education and socialization that it is okay to be off and it is okay to seek help when you're feeling off. And I think that there's been some great movement in a lot of organizations and areas of the U S but we've got a long way to go. We've really got a long way to go. Yeah, definitely. And I know that the military is attempting to improve because a lot of people don't come forward because they feel like if they have PTSD, they're going to lose their career. They're not going to be able to carry a weapon. And they, they just basically get stuck on this. Oh, they're going to take my gun away. That's like the biggest thing I hear all the time. They're going to take my gun away. And it's like, okay, you know, we got to talk through that. And the military is doing a better job at not right away, you know, being like, oh, you, you got PTSD. We got to get you out. And instead trying to help people get past it. I think one of the biggest fears is not knowing what's going to happen when you go. So, so you've been, you go to your doctor, cause that's the way in the military, you kind of have, you kind of normally go to your regular doctor and tell them, and then they will say, Hey, you got to go see mental health. Or some people can go straight to mental health, but a lot of people don't go cause they don't know what to expect. I know you guys can't speak for everyone, um, but what should someone who's maybe having these feelings expect at a few meetings with a mental health professional? That it's a conversation. That's what I tell people. It is just a conversation. You know, I do have a couch in my office, but I don't make people lay down on it. It's just to be comfortable and spread out. But really, and I hear other 
peers when they're encouraging friends to go and colleagues to go that they that's exactly the language they use too that seems to get across really well of just go try it out and then have a conversation with this person if you don't like it then try somebody else or maybe it's not for you or whatever but what's the the harm you know i think for that very first session it's tough because people you're trying to build rapport with the individual but they're really telling you like what the problem is. They're, you're trying to understand it as the therapist. And I tell them like the first session can be really hard because you kind of throw everything up on the table and then it's like, okay, well, next week we'll start putting you back together <laughs> or we'll right. start digging a little deeper or I'm going to ask all the questions next time. And it might not be until the third or fourth session to where we, we really start talking about what the plan is. So it's a process. Be patient. Let the person lead the way because especially if they're an expert or trained in treating people with post-traumatic stress disorder, there's a certain way to do that. And there's certain ways you don't want to do that. So it really Absolutely. needs a lot of trust. Look, I just piggybacking on what um, Shiloh was saying, my main goal in that conversation in the first couple of sessions is to develop a relationship. And what my, my goal, my personal goal, how I approach my clinical work is to make sure that I am not coming at my client with this position of superiority mm -hmm. and that I'm meeting them where they are. I want to meet you where you are. I work from what's called a, a narrative orientation where I am not the expert in your life. You are the expert in your life. I do have some expertise. I have a bunch of letters after my name and I have a bunch of tricks that actually work. And I have techniques that actually work. And I've got some education that might help you define what's going on for you a little bit better. But I don't know what makes you tick. I don't know what's important to you. I don't know what scares you. And you get to share that with me on your own schedule. I'm not going to go digging around with a pickaxe trying to get at it. Um, and I think that that's actually what, to pat myself on the back, I think that that makes <laughs> my work successful in, in many ways that other clinicians don't. There are some very, I've worked with clinicians that are very like, you know, plop the client down in a chair and pull out their clipboard with 60 questions of a rubric that are designed like a decision tree to get you to what the diagnosis is. Mm -hmm. and by doing that, I feel like that's dehumanizing to the person sitting across from me. And I don't want to do that. So I actually put out that I was going to be interviewing um, you all today on my on my Facebook page, on the Military Murder Facebook page. And, and someone asked a really good question. This question is by, by Sonia. It says, on average, how many therapists does someone go through before they find the one? So I'm assuming this means, you know, usually have to go through more than one, which makes sense. I mean, it's the same thing for finding an eyelash person. You know what I mean? You go to a few until you find the one you like. Yes. I mean, and that's like, that's like not that big deal. It's, it's my eyelashes. But I mean, finding a doctor that you actually, you know, have like a, a relationship with is difficult. Do you happen to know kind of how that works? Is, it, is there maybe like three or four? Like, is there a magic number or what exactly? You know, I think you guys kind of answered that already. That's a good question. I don't know if I've ever heard the number. Have you, Scott? I've never heard the number, but I do, I do approach it specifically like this when people find me i have a very small private practice on on beside doing the podcast and doing my my day work with law enforcement 
but I'm always doing this. Like people come to me uh, or they find my website, or they find me through psychology today and they'll call and make an appointment. And I'll usually do like 20 minutes of a free phone call or FaceTime video just to like, let them know a little bit who I am. And I always say, I want you to shop. I, I am not the perfect therapist for everybody. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for somebody that's going to sit and nod their head for six months, that's not me because I want an active back and forth conversation. I want you to be in the position to say, Scott, shut up. Let me get a word in edgewise <laughs> because I want that kind of collaborative feeling with my clients. And that doesn't work for everybody. And I piss some people off. And then I have other people that like really enjoy the work. I do think that it is important that at some point in your work with someone, if they always think you're the best and the greatest and they don't get frustrated or irritated with something you say, then you're not doing your job as a therapist because our job really is to create that safe relationship, hold the boundaries, hold that paradigm so that we can then move in and say, okay, let's talk about some tough stuff now Mm -hmm. so that they can be pissed off at me, but they know I'm not going anywhere. They can storm out of the room, but they're going to be back the next week because they know they can trust me. But that being said, I will say to people, go on psychology today, go on goodtherapy.org and look at people's photos, look at their bios, look at what they, they say in their advertisements, because that's going to give you a really good sense of what they're about. Shadow, what do you, what do you think? It took me two tries to find my own therapist. <laughs> um, I, I don't have the experience that Scott has because my private practice is very directly refers. Re- I just get referrals through attorneys, but I know that people, it's hard to have a connection. Sometimes you have to give it some time. You have to trust it. But I think that's a beautiful part of being able to spend some time with someone, whether it's you know, 20 minutes or full free session to see how it feels. And I think it's a pretty, you get a pretty good vibe in the first session. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, you know, I usually do as a therapist and um, it, again, it can be hard because you're kind of laying your stuff out on the table again and being vulnerable. So there is that give and take there, but it's, it's worth it to find the right person. And if, I don't want people to ever feel like, oh my gosh, I'm so invested, but I feel like nothing's happening or I hate my therapist. And then they don't leave, just leave, you know, talk about it with your therapist, I think, but that could be very hard to do. I know. It's like breaking up with someone. It's like, oh, it is. (laughs) Yeah. I'll just write a sticky note. I'll just leave them a voicemail. Tell them I'm not going to be back, but people no show. We never see them again. And, you know, that's just where they're at in their, their journey. Yeah. So I have a random question. I don't think I I brought this up to you guys, but what are the plays between PTSD and depression and suicide? Cause that's a big thing. Oh, so many plays (laughs) between all of these. Um, Can there be PTSD without depression? Yes, there can. Um, And I would say that people who are healing from it, who are doing work on their trauma are probably going to be less depressed than people who are stuffing it down and not addressing it. Mm -hmm. There's just so many different ways in which to talk about this. Here's a good way to talk about it is to kind of talk about actually how resiliency works 
with people. So when you have a resilient individual, whether it's because they're naturally resilient or because they've really worked on their resiliency, because now we know in psychology that you can, you can build up your resiliency bank and constantly be kind of, you know, putting money in the bank towards that next obstacle that you're going to have to deal with. But a resilient person generally has a few different components in their life that makes them able to go through a really tough time, possibly even a traumatic time in which they bounce back quicker and they are not completely debilitated from it. Like they come out of it better than maybe someone who isn't resilient. Mm -hmm. And the components those people have in place are usually great support systems, social support systems, and they actually use the social support system when they need them. And I think this was, this is a great thing to kind of talk about later when we're talking about military and law enforcement, because do they really ask for help from the people in their lives? Mm -hmm. So having that really great support system, having some wonderful coping skills, both preventative, like what do they do all the time to make sure they're in a good place? But when they're in a bad place, what are those interventions that they can kind of pull out of their pocket as well? So many things are backed by research as far as coping skills and resiliency, gratitude, mindfulness, optimism, being able to think of what got you through the last tough time and then utilizing those skills again. So I'm kind of taking it in this positive view of that's the ideal of what you would want. Mm -hmm. But when someone doesn't have those things and they're isolated and they've experienced a trauma and they're not reaching out to anyone and their coping skill is to drown their worries in a bottle of alcohol, then you run the risk for obviously the symptomology of the PTSD, heightening, feeling isolated and depressed, clearly like that's going to put people on a pathway to possible suicidal ideation because they just want the, the psychological pain to stop. It's not that they want to die. Right. They just want the psychological pain to stop as weird as that sort of counterintuitive as that sounds. Scott, what would you add? Well, I think that looking at, I mean, for the purposes of this, we're talking about from a military perspective, we ask our young people in this country to take on incredibly adult responsibilities at a very young age before they have actually had the chance to develop a lot of the skills of resiliency. And look, some people are born with it. I mean, we have worked with childhood victims of sexual trauma and in, you know, multi-sibling families and two kids can get the same kind of horrific abuse. One is completely fine. The other one is absolutely traumatized. Mm -hmm. So there's clearly some like organicity or, you know, brain structure issues or maybe chemical uh, balance issues that may contribute to a person being resilient, but we do expect a lot of our military and we, we put them in these extraordinary situations without that particular training. I mean, this is going to sound completely woo woo, but you know what Shiloh was talking about, if we actually trained our warriors to be mindful warriors from the beginning, I think that would make a difference. That would make a huge difference. Now that's, that's an enormous policy issue. And there's a lot of ingrained hierarchical things that are probably going to stand in the way of that. But 
I think that that's important to remember that resiliency can look very differently and look differently in different people. PTSD can look differently in a wide spectrum of people. And I wish we actually had sort of a broader idea of what that looks like, because I think we should be more aware of even if this person only has this area of hypervigilance, that should allow them to hit qualifications for treatment. And unfortunately, in some of our hospitals, if you're not meeting all the criteria, they're not going to give you what are the most statistically validated and evidenced proven therapies for that disorder. Another issue that I wanted to touch on that may be related to some of the questions is I, in my day-to-day work, come in contact with a lot of veterans in very bad space Mm -hmm. because of what they've been through, where they came from before they even got into the military, and then what happened to them after they got out of the military. And what I think is dangerous is that they have been told they have PTSD and they might not. They might have severe depression because they came from a depressive family or they had a father with bipolar and they're cyclothymic, which is like bipolar light. And they've been struggling all these years, but why does my life go up and down? I don't understand this, but we also don't allow men to go and put themselves in a position where they say to someone, something is really fucked up for me. Can you, can someone please help me? Right. So like Shala was saying, how many of these people actually go out and ask for that kind of support? When it comes to suicidality, thankfully, it's not incredibly common, but it is way higher in law enforcement and military than it should be. And why like should be as opposed to anybody else, because we don't want anyone to be in a position where they're contemplating self-harm and ending their life. But we've already got these structures in place. They're already hierarchical structures. They should be able to implement a lot of things that address these issues for our people in uniform. That's just my soapbox, but I don't (laughs) see that a lot um, happening. I do do see it happening with the law enforcement I work with who are former military. They will pull out all the stops for vets. They will pull out all the stops. We will get nonprofit and non-VA related services. And they will, people will be going to their home like on a volunteer basis, like having to prop this person, not, not having to, wanting to prop this person up and get them on the track again. And it is frustrating that as large as our military is and as much money as budgeted to it is, is people that work for the VA have to work within this framework that clearly is not meeting the needs of the people who need it the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And um, I will, I will add that as a female veteran myself, 11 years, I I can attest to the women in the military who also feel maybe less likely to ask for help because they feel like they have to be just as tough as the guys. Absolutely. That's just um, something that I've seen. And then also, you know, just with sexual assault in the military and like, and you just hit it. I mean, oh my goodness, we, we have to have this, you guys should make a podcast just about veterans (laughs) because you, what you said was so amazing. People have trauma before the military, you know, they, they at least right. have to, yeah. go to join and, and there's so much sexual abuse that happens and so much other just physical abuse and just mental abuse that happens before they join and then they join. And then afterwards they have this whole other life. And so 
is there such a thing, I guess, I, I, I was thinking about this earlier as like compounded PTSD. So you have like PTSD from childhood trauma and then you go to war and you get blown up and you get PTSD again. And then something happens after you get in a really bad car wreck as a veteran. I mean, is there such a thing as just like compounded PTSD? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think that's what kind of screws some people up sometimes is because they can, it, it can certainly be one event like we've talked about, but maybe they have one traumatic event and they're pretty good. Like, you know, they quote unquote heal within the time frame they're supposed to. And then they go out on another mission and there's another traumatic event. Maybe this time it wasn't witnessing something, their life was threatened. But you know what? They're, they're doing okay. They're able to do their job. They're functioning. They're not experiencing a ton of symptoms outside of that month. And then the third event actually might not be that bad, but that might be the one that then triggers all of the symptoms. And then guess what? They don't get a chance to heal from it. We're going to send them back out and just keep exposing them to trauma. So it, it absolutely can be cumulative over a career, over a small span of time, depending on, you know, if it's a combat deployment or what have you. And it can be the one that just feels like the straw that broke the camel's back, like maybe a, a light yeah. one, but it's on top of this mound of stuff. And I love that you're bringing up possibly even stuff previous to the military, just their own background. Mm -hmm. So we, and we even have a name for it. It's called complex PTSD. And so there's a modifier CPTSD. And one of the places that we have the most research from that is looking at military members of color who have come from backgrounds where they have experienced extreme racism or marginalization. And then they're supposed to come into this military structure that is supposed to be about like, we are all becoming soldiers. We are leaving behind a lot of what we were and we are forging out of a crucible, a new identity as warriors. Mm -hmm. And within that, we're going to give each other respect and support. But the truth is that doesn't happen all the time. And that can add a really toxic layer of cake to that um, PTSD. Oh my goodness. So, so this kind of is a segue to what, what we had talked earlier. All my cases, I feel like a lot of my cases, I would say a majority of them, we have perpetrators and victims where they have suffered from PTSD or depression or whatever. My most recent cases that I have talked about basically have to deal, ha deal with people who one, I think has had diagnosed PTSD and one had like undiagnosed PTSD, but I'm pretty sure this guy had complex PTSD. I know that, you know, ethically, y'all can't speak to the actual cases or the people. But one of the questions that, that I have and, and a lot of my listeners have is from this complex PTSD or even just a one time of a PTSD event that then caused them to have PTSD. Can you guys speak a little bit about what's the breaking point where someone might? I and mean, I'm not saying that they will because. There's so many people who live day in and day out without with PTSD and do not commit heinous crimes. But we do have, you know, my podcast shows, we do have some cases where they do, they have a breaking point and they just snap. Are there studies that have studied the psychology of it or what causes that person to do that? And then can we talk about ways to prevent it? And I think we've kind of already talked about that, but let's just kind of go in that order. Well, 
one of the things that we know with all of the research about violent events, especially mass shootings and school shootings, no, first of all, nobody snaps. That is the snapping is not a thing. Okay. Um, the pathway to violence is an evolution. And so people, you know, get on this evolutionally evolutionary path for a number of reasons. When it comes to many individuals that were former military, unfortunately, because they have this stigma about seeking help for their issues, what they'll do is they'll fall to what they know. And what they know is self-medication. So if alcohol is used and look, I look, cannabis is legal in this country. I have no problem with that, but people are now ingesting and using cannabis that is 500 times stronger than anything that was found in nature before they started doing hybrids and it gets stronger and stronger. And now you have unlimited access to it. There's also absolutely this proliferation of crystal meth on the streets of any large urban area and a lot of like backwoods areas too, because it's incredibly cheap to manufacture. And when that becomes a factor in someone's self-medication, all bets are off for when they're going to act in a violent way, because all of those substances really severely impact the individual's ability to, it, it impacts their cognitive abilities. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things I, I, I wanted to say about that is there is no snapping. It's always an evolution. And the more you dig into these cases after the fact, unfortunately, you start finding like, oh, this was happening. Oh, this was happening. So what is the thing that pulls the chair out from under the person that does push them over into violence? Usually that is the removal of one of the aspects of what they perceive to be their support system. So if they've got a girlfriend and the girlfriend finally says, I am out of here. I can't take this anymore. I'm gone. Mm -hmm. And then they lose a job. Boom. They've just lost two chair legs. So that's going to lead to a sense of hopelessness, helplessness, anger, you know, frustration and whatever else has been boiling up in their mind for the last few years or however amount of time. That's what causes people to roll over into acts of violence. And there's so many overlapping factors that are similar with homicidal ideation and suicidal ideation. So if there is a red flag for either of those, others should also be assessed. And that's why we sometimes those those legs get kicked underneath them. And sometimes it's suicide. Sometimes it's murder suicide. And we know in the research specifically in law enforcement that with officers that die by suicide, there's what we call the deadly triad. There's three things going on there. Almost the majority of the cases, vast majority. I'm sorry, I don't have an exact number for it, but there's underlying untreated depression. There is an alcohol abuse problem, or I would say substance abuse. It's usually alcohol or it's usually pain meds and the recent loss of a romantic relationship. So exactly what Dr. Scott was saying, the girlfriend or the wife or the boyfriend or the husband says, I'm done. And it really feels final that time. And that is almost always going on when we sort of do this psychological autopsy of law enforcement officers who die by suicide. 
So I would assume the numbers are pretty darn close for the military. Yes, I've actually covered quite a few cases where it's murder-suicide and it's usually someone is saying they're going to leave. And it's usually not the first time they say they're going to leave. And going back to resilience, you know, cops and military are not great at utilizing their social support system in the ways we want them to. Like I said, you know, there's definitely this this insulation of, okay, I'm just going to surround myself with people like me, my law enforcement buddies, my military friends, maybe just by nature of the job. You know, if, if you're on a base or if you are steeped in the job, working crazy, ungodly long hours, that's who you have around you. And hand in hand of what we talked about of not wanting to show weakness, you know, the stigma of going and seeking help. There's also the stigma of just telling someone that you're not doing well. So if you're not saying, if you're not utilizing that social support system, a lot of times the barriers I see also is that that person is usually the rock of the family or of the the friend group. Mm. So it's really hard for them to turn to someone else and say, I need the support now. I'm having trouble. They also don't want to burden people with their stuff. So you know, I, I don't want to call, you know, my buddy's going through his own stuff and, you know, my mom, like, gosh, she doesn't need to hear my stuff too. And then they just end up not telling anyone, but they isolate themselves. They don't have great coping skills. And this is all stuff that usually develops after they get on the job. I mean, in law enforcement, I mean, we psychologically screen them pretty well. I mean, you know, pretty comprehensively. So we rule out a lot of these things that we're then seeing years later, but it's because of the nature of the work. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. That's so, I want to go back a little bit to the resiliency that y'all talked about, because in the military, we have these resiliency trainings and it's usually like, Hey, let's have a barbecue or here's this PowerPoint presentation. And it's so not helpful. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know, I'm trying to think um, maybe in the beginning, you know, we, we do it every couple months and then it just kind of like takes us away from our work. So everyone feels like, oh, we have to have this resiliency training and then we're going to have more work to go back to because we took a whole day to be resilient. And now, right. we- <laughs> so now I'm stressed out. Yeah, it's kind of um, kind of an in- interesting um, predicament. But what, go ahead. Can, I, can I jump in about something? I, I, I know I don't want to get too far away from your question, but I do want to illustrate mm-hmm. something. I've had the opportunity and the great luck to, in my life, live in many different places around Mm -hmm. the world, much like military do. And it was a great experience and it made me love the U.S. in many ways that I didn't have an appreciation for before Mm -hmm. I traveled. But what I do think that the U.S. gets wrong in a big way is that we don't we, we have this really perverted idea of. Uh, work ethic. And like you are supposed to work yourself until you are so stressed out and your fingers are bleeding. Mm-hmm. Right. And no other country, not, a lot of other countries don't do that. Like Australia, it's like, no, you have your two months of vacation every year, no matter what your job is. And there's the stress levels are lower in these countries that do it. But we have this sort of cowboy mentality of just work, 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 work. And, you know, that has a, a bunch of ill effects on the body. So I fall prey to that, too. Like you're saying, like, oh, crap, it's a it's a three day weekend and I'm going to love having that Monday off. But then, you know, it means a short <laughs> week. 
And you know what? Like, I have to remind myself, I have to listen to that voice that says the work's not going anywhere. It's not more. It's not less. The work is the work and I'm not responsible for it. Take that up the ladder. But I had to be taught to think that way when somebody, when I had a supervisor one time that said, you're a great worker, you're going to burn out and have a heart attack. Like you, I really need you to pull back a little bit and take, learn to take care of yourself. So this is a psychologist saying this to another psychologist. And it was really valuable for me to hear that. It was really valuable. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about in those resiliency trainings, whoever does them for you, the way to make those really helpful is to not make them scary. So it's not like, okay, we're going to do, um, we're going to do role play of you opening up to someone. It doesn't have to be real, but you're going to role play it. Well, that's fucking frightening. <laughs> Nobody wants to, to do that. I mean, it really <laughs> is. Nobody wants to do that. But if you make it playful about like, Hey, so we're not going to talk about the things that are on the 10 point scale of driving you crazy. Let's talk about what a number three is. Who's willing to share a number three in the group today. And somebody might say, Oh, I keep forgetting to replace the, the battery in my car fob. And I feel like an idiot. That's a three for me. You know, if you start out in a place that's safe, that people realize they can talk about it, then you can start experimenting with going to like a four and a half or maybe even a six. And now let's have some barbecue. Everybody relax. Now we've just taught people that there's a way to have these difficult conversations that's not going to be embarrassing or frightening to us. And I think that another part of it is that military and law enforcement and most adults, actually, I shouldn't even say it for, for those particular fields, but people don't really develop an emotional vocabulary. You know, remember the Pixar movie um, in and out where they have like the, the emotions, of the girl's head, it's a great movie. And as clinicians, we really love it. But one of the things that happens is when somebody says, I'm so angry and I'm like, well, what kind of anger are you? Like, what is the anger? They're like, I don't know. I'm just angry. And then I pull out my trusty feeling wheel. I even have pillowcases in my office that are color feeling wheels. I'm like, here's your anger pie chart. What I'm frustrated. That's it. That's what I'm feeling right now. I'm so frustrated because blah, 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 blah. Or I'm irritated or I'm scared and I'm this kind of scared. If we could lay a groundwork for people to understand those things better. I think we could open a dialogue up about what's really eating at us and get to those core issues. I want one of those pillows. Will you get me one for Christmas? I think. <laughs> I, you got it. I'm getting you one. Send one to Margo I, I and then she can pull it out at yeah. training. <laughs> and you guys, I encourage anybody listening, just Google feeling wheel and you'll get some great ones that come up and they are awesome for when you're having those difficult conversations with your your significant other. Oh man, <laughs> this is going to be good for my kids. Cause I have a right? three year old and a five-year-old and, and man, and I'm like, oh, what, yeah. why are you so mad? I made you what you wanted to eat. <laughs> There's an awesome set of cards that are all about feelings that are for kids that are like flashcards, mm-hmm. but they have little drawings and they're really specific type feelings like that. I buy those for people all the time is baby shower gifts. You have to send me the like, link. I will. I will. Because they're so great. It's like, here, let your let your little boy start learning how to name feelings now. <laughs> It'll pay off one day. <laughs> that is awesome. Oh, my goodness. It, OK, so y'all just hit on a, basically a support system talking about support system. And actually, one of my listeners had a question. Let me find it. OK, here it is. 
what does someone's partner who has PTSD, how can they be supportive? Oh, that is a wonderful question. Um, this is going to sound so like meta or inception, but communication is always going to be important. But for that partner to ask the person with PTSD, how can I support you today? How can I support you right now? You know, instead of like, what can I do? What do you need? Just opening up the question like that, because that can mean a million things, right? That could mean I need an extra five minutes today before we get the family out of the house, or I need to not go today. Um, The person can really start to articulate what they need. And that can be super helpful, honestly, in any kind of like couples therapy and communication skill building. But letting them know you're supportive, it's hard because I think people don't want to tread too lightly and miss something. And then they don't want to be all up in their face and feel like that they're adding to the stress, right? So the, I won't say constant, but the consistent checking in of how can I support you? And then of course, you know, supporting their decisions as far as, you know, getting help and therapy and trying to help them in that way. But I, I, I think that's just, you know, an overall, what I would say when I think about a day-to-day of a couple living together. I completely agree. I also think it's important for the support system to have a support system. You know, this is not your burden to carry alone. And first and foremost, get education because sometimes your shit can get triggered by your partner's shit and that becomes a big problem. So one of the things I would put out there as a great organization is NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. It is a wonderful website. There are chapters all over the U.S. And, you know, they are families and friends and spouses of people struggling with various forms of mental illness or emotional challenges. And there are incredible resources and support systems that are very, very helpful and and really you know, I, I think everybody benefits from therapy and there's a lot of options out there right now. There are helplines, there are 800 lines, there are suicide, uh, depression and depression lines and anxiety lines reach out, you know, don't feel like you have to shoulder the burden yourself of taking care of this individual when you're not really sure what's going on because, and here's a, an, an analogy that I think is important to remember too, is that And this is going to be difficult because we think of loving relationships and sickness and health and all that stuff like I'm going to be there for this person and I'm going to stick through it. And you know what? Sometimes it may not be possible to stick through it. And I'm talking about the most severe cases. And I've seen a lot of really severe cases. But the reason that boats have life preservers hanging on the side is you throw it out to the person to give them the life preserver so that you can reel them back in. You don't jump in the water to swim out to them because in their desperation for survival, they will pull you down and you may drown as well. So using that metaphor, your support system is as much a life preserver for that person as it is for you and keeping appropriate boundaries. um, And certainly when it comes to like, I draw a line in the sand, their physical abuse is never, ever appropriate. It's just not. And it it is a turning point in relationships that I encourage everybody 
to get away from. So if we're talking about like a significant other relationship and now it has moved because someone has PTSD and is struggling with their symptoms, but we are now moving into IPV, intimate partner violence, that's a whole other level that has to be addressed immediately. And Shiloh has, and I know you feel very strongly about IPV yeah, as def- well. I mean, obviously easier said than done and probably a topic for an entire right. other exactly. <laughs> podcast episode. But yeah, at, when it crosses into that space, a, a lot of work needs to be done, but there needs to be a safety plan in place. Yes. We all know that that's the most dangerous time in, um, in, a, in a relationship where uh, there's domestic violence and someone plans on leaving. Yeah. Sometimes all the best laid plans still backfire if someone shows up from work early or something like that when you're trying to move. Oh. Yes. Yes. Yep. But once again, I mean, circling them back around to what Shiloh said at the beginning and what you emphasized as well is we're not saying by any stretch of the imagination that PTSD absolutely equals that one of these horrible things is going to happen. That is, we're talking about the worst case scenarios right here. Exactly. Exactly. Which is, you know, kind of what my podcast is about is worst case scenario, right? And that's why I definitely wanted to bring both of you on to kind of talk about PTSD. So that's kind of why we went into that discussion. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. So one of my listeners, Gabrielle, asked, what testing measures are they using besides subjective interviews? Question mark. And then she wrote PCL5? Question mark. Yeah, it looks like the VA uses it. Yeah. And it's a... 20 items self-report measure. So uh, a self-report interview is going to be, if you know the right questions to ask, same thing. So it's going to be garnering information from the individual to see if they meet that criteria that I laid out at the beginning. And I would, I would always be, I would prefer to do it in person than have someone do a self-report because like, I think the ones that people respond to the most, like there's a self-report for anxiety and nobody really feels too badly about feeling anxious. Um, depression, some people may not want to admit. PTSD, you know, you've, we've got to assume that the individual is being open and authentic about what their symptoms are when they answer those. So I would, I would rather do it in person if I can. I would also 
argue to, you know, talking about this not ending in these devastating ways that we've kind of touched on today. But I would argue PTSD is probably one of the most manageable diagnoses in the DSM to where, you know, you're going to have it forever. There's no cure. I was going to ask that. I'm so glad you said that because I was like, is it a weird question for me to ask that? Okay, so if there is, there's no cure. Right. There, there isn't for a lot of disorders or diagnoses, but is it manageable? Absolutely. As long as you're coming forward with what you're experiencing and you're getting help, it's, it, it's one of the best case scenario diagnoses to have in a lot of ways. And, and again, like it doesn't always have to be at that far end of the extreme, like we think, but an incredibly manageable diagnosis. There's a great um, meme that's going around about grief and about how, how do you get through grief? And when people say, does it hurt? You know, does it, is it going to hurt like this all the time? And they use the image of like a, a little box with a button on one wall and there's an enormous ball in there and you're, you are that ball. And every once in a while, you're going to bounce off one side of the box and you're going to hit that button and it's going to, you're going to relive all of your grief so intensely about your loved one that you've lost or the job that you've lost or whatever stressor you've had in your life. And does that ever go away? No, it doesn't go away, but your room gets bigger and bigger. Like, so the box is really big and there's a lot less likelihood of you slamming into that button again. So I think of that in terms of what Shiloh was just talking about with PTSD is that we have so many great treatments and more are coming down the pipe as well. We've got um, chemical therapies that are like on the cutting edge of dealing with resetting the brain. And we've got sort of cognitive treatments and stuff that uses like neurofeedback and EMDR and brain spotting. They all have efficacy. We just have to get people to do them so that they build up resiliency, start rewiring the brain in the way that it needs to be rewired so that when they get triggered by hearing an auto backfire on the road outside their house, they don't immediately go to that fear place. They might startle, but they won't startle to the extent that they did before. And they will recompensate and reconstitute much quicker than they did in the early stages of the syndrome. Wow. That, that's so, that's so amazing. This is this, we kind of answered this question and if we did, we can, we can just skip it. But one of my listeners, uh, you already talked about the common symptoms of PTSD. Are there any uncommon symptoms of PTSD? I would say if there are uncommon symptoms of PTSD, it's probably the ones that are on the more extreme side of things. So the more severe the trauma or the number of exposures that have happened, that's when you're going to see the rarer stuff, like the flashbacks. Mm -hmm. So that is not common for somebody who has just experienced a traumatic event. We, the worst of the worst, we think about the Vietnam vet who here's the, the backfire of the car. And all of a sudden they're back there. They can smell the oil. They are in the jungle. They feel like they're sweating. That is pretty darn uncommon. So it's going to be the extreme side of the, the spectrum of those different types of symptoms that we laid out. 
they're also a lot more hidden. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say they're rare, but they're unexpected. There are things like developing tinnitus when you don't really have any hearing loss, um, ringing in the ears. Um, and a lot of things, remember that when people are scared, our body has, I mean, we're all feral animals on a very primitive level. And one of the things that our bodies will do is when we're scared, all of the blood goes to our viscera. It goes to the center of our body and it comes out of our, of our sort of extended limbs, our fingers, our hands, and even our head to an extent. And that's to keep you safe in case you've been cut. So that means you won't bleed out as much, but there are all these other things that happen because of that. If you're constantly in a state where you're hypervigilant and you're getting triggered over and over and over again, your poor little adrenal glands sitting on top of your kidneys are just squeezing, squeezing, squeezing adrenaline and cortisol in your system. So what does that cause? That causes weight gain, fatigue, coldness in the uh, hands and extremities. You can have poor circulation. There's a whole spectrum of stuff that happens medically that rarely even gets talked about with PTSD. Oh, there's another one. Here's a weird one. Your skin scars more easily because you're so hypervigilant all the time that you're not getting enough fluid circulating through your body to clean out all the scar tissue. So you will have more of a tendency to welt up and have more prominent scars after wounding. That's How crazy. weird is that? <laughs> I hadn't heard of that one. I saw a lot of survivors of the Las Vegas Mandalay Bay mass shooting. And so many of them were reporting this symptom that was happening right afterwards. And obviously this isn't PTSD because it wasn't a month down the road, but they were like, my God, I was so thirsty. Like I was just, and person after person would talk about being thirsty and they thought it was the weirdest thing. And they're like, it is so like, this probably means nothing. I don't even know why I'm saying this out loud. And then we would go over this sheet that I hand out at the end of the day or the end of the session, talking about all the things they might feel because sometimes reactions are delayed. Maybe they don't feel it. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's on your list, doc. Look, thirst when, when you're in a stressful situation or a traumatic event. And so there's little weird, random things like that. But I think it goes back to what we said before, you know, what is off with you. So whatever your normal is or whatever, you know, is sticking out to you as something that's off, it could be completely like this weird, random thing. Don't feel weird bringing it up. And I always, always, whenever I do a critical incident debriefing, you know, I go through my stuff, kind of educate them on what they might feel or what they've already experienced. And then I say, like, is there anything else that I didn't cover that you want to kind of ask me like, hey, is this normal or this kind of weird things going on? Because everyone has their own little quirks. I was just going to say also, without naming any names, because we want to stay, we want to stay clear of getting into any cases. But the idea of having a psychotic response to PTSD is actually quite rare. Um, so, and psychosis is a condition that occurs in individuals where they experience the world in a radically different way from people who are neuronormative or non-symptomatic. So they may hear things that are not there. They may see things that are not there. They may feel things on their body that are not there. And they may experience uh, what we call delusions, which are false beliefs. So there is some indication that 30 to 40% of people 
may experience some of these things, but overall, like the vast majority of that 30 to 40 percent are auditory hallucinations. Like that's a very, very common one, probably because of exposure to loud noises. I mean, that's one of the theories. But psychosis, like having really fixed delusional beliefs is actually pretty rare unless there is a substance induced into that person's chemistry that is likely to cause delusions. And anything that's in the amphetamine family is very likely to cause delusions in people. And Scott, can you clarify that percentage? You said 30 to 40% of what people with PTSD have psychosis? Among combat veterans with PTSD, 30 to 40% report auditory or visual hallucinations and delusions, but I could not get the research to drill down into what those delusions are and if they had pre-existing delusions before all of this happened, like some people believing in some real crazy shit out there these (laughs) days. I mean, we've all witnessed it. Like it's, it's nuts out there. What's some of the crazy stuff people are believing. So PTSD has a, a chance of causing something like that. My personal opinion in the individuals I've worked with that do have delusory belief systems, they had it before they were in the military, the inkling or the predisposition towards that type of thinking. Right. And, and how likely are they to actually reveal that before trying to get into the military? Right. 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 Mm, interesting. Wow. That was I learned a lot this whole, well, this whole session, we're not done yet, but (laughs) this is the second part of her question. It was, and this is Robin. She asked, how do you properly go about forming a healthy relationship with PTSD? It's going to depend on the individual. Uh, Absolutely. Um, A healthy relationship. Like I said, it's going to be there forever. It just, you need to start working on the management of it. So you need a professional to, to walk through that journey with you because trying to fix it on your own is, you know, there can be some substitutes. Like I I have known people with PTSD and the best quote unquote therapy was getting together and talking with the two other guys that were there who lived it and having their own, you know, what they would call group therapy, but it's processing. They were processing it. They were there for each other. They were talking about, oh my God, do you stand there and water just spurts out of your eyes, but you're not really crying. Oh yeah, that happens to me too. You know, some really manly men of just like, what is going on with these symptoms of mine? So there can be things like that, that isn't necessarily professional mental health intervention. It's also going to depend on the severity of the post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Because there's all those interventions that Dr. Scott was naming that you might need that higher level of support and treatment. You know, I remember a really famous speech that I got to hear that was made by Carrie Fisher, who passed away a couple of years ago. You know, if most people are familiar with Carrie Fisher from the Star Wars movies, uh, she also was a fixer in Hollywood where she would bump up scripts. So if a a comedy was really just not hitting its marks, they would hire her to come in for a lot of money and write jokes. And she was really struggled with bipolar and substance abuse for many years. And her speech talking about dealing with her ongoing bipolar disorder was fascinating to me because the way she described it is she goes, you know what? Every once in a while, Fred comes to visit. 
And Fred is super fun for the first couple of days. Fred is the life of the party. Fred goes out and makes new friends. And then Fred fucks up my life. And Fred is a part of me. He's always, he's like, you know, a member of the family. I'm never going to get rid of him no matter what medications I take, but I can put some boundaries on him and I can have a more healthy relationship with him than I would if I didn't address it, if I didn't get treatment, if I didn't take medications. And that was really profound for me to hear that as a young clinician, when I heard that, I thought that was so fascinating. And I've used it in my own work when people are just bogged down by depression or they're electrified by their anxiety. I'll say, well, let's name your anxiety. I mean, it doesn't have to be you. Let's externalize this thing that's doing so much harm to you and let's change your relationship. Maybe you can tell Martha to go fuck off and leave you alone because you don't have time for her tonight. You've got to get dinner on the table and you got two kids and I don't want to deal with your shit, Martha. Go. We'll talk for five minutes tomorrow. I mean, those kind of things actually are a, a real parallel to what can be done with syndromes such as PTSD. Can we name her Karen instead of Martha? Yes, I was going to say. <laughs> Sounds like Karen. <laughs> well, that's so amazing. I follow someone on, um, uh, I think it's called Juggling the Jenkins or something like that. She's She, uh, she actually um, has struggled with substance abuse and uh, depression, um, even suicide, I believe. And she does this skit where she is her, right? <laughs> she, it'll say like, my anxiety, like she walks into a room and then there's all these people, but it's all her, but it's different versions of her. Like this is the anxious her. This is the depressed her. This is the really super excited wanting to be there for everybody her. And it's so amazing because that's exactly what you're talking about. And I love watching these videos, maybe because maybe this is a lot about myself because I, I mean, I know I have a lot of different personalities, but it's amazing to kind of visualize it that way that you can be all yeah. these different types of people and you have to hone someone down. You're like, hey, listen, you need to just kind of take the back seat because it's not you right now. It's not about you right now. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to have to find that um, the Carrie Fisher speech that you were talking about and post it because that sounds I like that. Um, Kim asked, other than therapy and alpha stim, are there other treatments for someone who doesn't want to take medications? And she says, I should mention they I'm assuming the person who may have PTSD full heartedly believes the diagnosis is incorrect. I mean, there's great treatments out there. There's great medications out there. It doesn't matter if the person's not willing to engage. Well, it's like, okay, you're saying you don't have PTSD, but you got something, something's going on. What can we do with what you've got? Well, I don't want to, I don't have, I don't have this. I don't have that. That's a whole other hour long talk about how you try and communicate that to people. But when it does come to medications, look, there is almost more stigma about taking medications than there is about mental health diagnoses themselves because it and for one reason you can't get people to think of like it's the same thing as spraying bactine on your cut you know that's going to help it heal these medications are going to help your brain reconstitute and yes there are side effects but no it doesn't mean that you are weak because you're taking this, it doesn't mean that you're weak because when you put neosporin on your abrasion, it doesn't. It means that you are using a tool to help you get better. Some people, when they're in the midst of their worst symptoms of panic disorder or agoraphobia or OCD or PTSD, they are so stressed out by the weight and severity of their symptoms, they can't use 
the skills that I'm trying to teach them. I can't teach you to do square breathing or tactical breathing when you're so flipped out that you can't stop moving and crying. Sometimes we have to take the edge off and we've got to just stop shaming people for needing medication. It, you know, the medication is a tool to reduce the symptoms enough to where we can get in there and do the pick and shovel work. But I do think that your questioner had, I mean, that is a very specific thing. There has to be, you know, we have civil rights in this country. And unless you are profoundly mentally ill, gravely disabled, a danger to yourself, a danger to others, we can't just yank you off the street and jab a needle in your butt or force some pills down your throat. It doesn't work that way. So even when somebody is in their worst state, and I, I have such great compassion and, and um, concern for people who are suffering, but you got to give me something to work with. I have to have one small, leave me a cracked door open, please, so that I can get something through to get you back on the road to recovery. And I think that's difficult as some people come to us as clinicians, they're like, what can you do about my brother, my father, my mother? If they can't help us a little bit, if that individual who's suffering can't let their guard down enough for us to help, then we're really in a bad state. It's not a lot we can do. Yeah. It's like someone who wants to lose weight and they go to a nutritionist, but they don't want to follow any of the, uh, any of the diets or or meal plans or anything like that, that the person is offering. It's like, well, you gotta at least trust me, like, give me, give me a month, give me one month, you know, like, just give me time to help you. Change is hard. People, research shows people have heart attacks and then, you know, here's your activity and nutrition regimen that you have to follow and people don't, and they almost die. Is there anything else that you think that we can chat about, about PTSD or anything like that, that we've kind of haven't talked about that you may have, that you may hear questions that you may hear all the time? You know, I think in this last couple of years, which has been really hard for everybody with the global pandemic and the unique stressors and chronic stress that has come with that, I kind of feel like the, the term resiliency has been super played out, especially in law enforcement and military, and people are just kind of tuning it out at this point. And so in the last year or so, I've really gravitated towards this concept of grit or having a gritty mindset. And I I probably just sort of repackaged this a little bit to be able to speak to my audiences, but I found that people are taking it in and hearing it with a fresh pair of ears. And it's really this idea of there's tough times. Nothing is going to come and rescue us from whatever the problem is, whether it's a global pandemic or whether it's whatever personal obstacle you're going through, that really the only way out is through it. And I think that law enforcement military draws very gritty people to begin with. It draws really resilient people, right? You don't sign up for this job if you don't think that you can handle the stuff. Even if you don't know the reality of it, you know some of it, you know what you're going to have to face. But gritty grit is really two things. It's perseverance, but it's also the passion for whatever the situation is, whether it's the job, you know, the meaning and purpose behind the job, or the environment that you're in. And I have really encouraged people to look at themselves, like their personal grit, but also creating a gritty group at work, surrounding yourself with good people, leaving the naysayers and that crusty old 
guy that's been around forever who motherfucks everything, you know, <laughs> get him out of your life. Like you don't need that anymore. You know, misery loves company. And then also at home, like how do you create a gritty family? And that's been really important in these last couple of years as well. And I think this holds true for military families. It's a lot of communication. It's a lot of planning on the front end, things that we know, like let's have a plan for what if somebody gets sick with COVID? What is, are you going to go to a hotel? Are we going to quarantine you to your room? So at least the family knows when that stuff happens that you have a plan to put in place. Because of course you have passion for your family, but you need everybody on board to have perseverance too. So I, I think that comes naturally to these, these occupations and professions that we're talking about. But sometimes you need a little bit of a reminder to cut the bad stuff out of your life, cut the negativity out and just build that really good, gritty group around you, whether it's at work or at home. That's excellent. I guess the, what I would piggyback on with that is to say, look, I mean, stati- okay, this is going to sound bizarre, but like, I understand that things are rough right now in many ways, or at least we have the perception of things being very rough. And I don't want to minimize any of the stressors that anybody listening to this is feeling right now. But I do want to say that we have been through an extraordinary 19 months now going on two years. Extraordinary. And what has happened is there's been a lot of people across the political spectrum, across. I'm going to make sure everybody understands I'm saying across the spectrum. Everybody I hold responsible for this have created a lot of political divisiveness which has put people in already in a heightened fear state to dig their heels in. And people now are wearing thin and they're not functioning at their best. And this is the time where it is time to take stock, pull back, use whatever tools you have to take care of yourself. And I like the idea of surrounding yourself with gritty people. I also have to say that like, look, statistically, things tend to get better. I mean, I know that it feels like things are shit out there right now, but we live in a miraculous time with with, uh, medications that can keep you from dying. You know, a hundred years ago, you cut your finger, you could be dead in two days, right? We live in a very wonderful world with a lot of great things. And having that identity of resiliency and grit, like Shiloh was talking about, is also looking at things very realistically. Things are not all that bad for me. Yes, I'm out of work right now, but I had work before. I'll probably get work again. And looking, I want to be very clear. I I'm, I'm, don't mean to minimize that there are marginalized communities. Um, there's ageism, there's racism, there's sexism. There's a whole bunch of really bad problems that we need to address. But Everything has been viewed through the lens of pandemic and COVID for us interpersonally for the past 18 months. And it's had an effect on everybody. I've been struggling with depression and anxiety. And I'm lucky I've got an invisible toolbox right by my side that is full of tools I use all the time. Okay, I got to do my breathing. Did I get to the gym today? Have I eaten a good meal? Am I hydrated? Have I made sure I laugh? Have I done three minutes of sitting and thinking about what I'm grateful for? Those things can absolutely be almost magical in getting us back to what is our most healthy baseline. And I would hope that anyone listening to this 
kind of can get a little bit of sense of relief so that they're not thinking, well, it's not all me. I'm not alone in this. You're not alone. We're all struggling. That's awesome. Oh my goodness. Well, I think, I think we got it all. We covered a lot. lot. (laughs) We did cover a lot. I I think we're definitely have to come back and and talk about some other stuff because I definitely have some more questions about a whole bunch of other things. And I know my listeners are going to, too. So I just want to say I really appreciate both of you for taking the time on a Sunday. And so what a lot of podcast listeners don't know is this isn't our first job. This isn't your you guys only job. Right. This is kind of like a secondary thing, something that we do on the side. Right. And so it's Sunday night. It's 9 p.m. almost my time. And it's 7 p.m. almost your guys' time over in California. And so I just want to say I am so grateful. I didn't know how this conversation was going to go, but it flowed so well. I feel like I'm talking to two of my best friends, right? <laughs> That's the highest compliment you could get. It's Thank you so mutual, much. Margo. You're so easy to, to yeah. go back and forth with. And yes. And you guys just, I love what you guys do and you guys, know so much about the veteran community and sometimes what I know a lot of my listeners feel like they're like, thank you. Thank you, Margo, for covering these military cases that sometimes don't get people don't talk about. Right. People don't want to talk about this. They don't want to talk about the stigma. They don't want to look bad. They don't want. And it's like, okay, well, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it because my biggest thing is this makes us vigilant. Right. And it's not just vigilant of like, you got to lock your doors. You got to close a window. You got to do this. You got to walk with the keys. It's also about ourselves because sometimes we are our greatest enemy, right? Because we just hold things in and we don't want to, you know, spill our guts to a stranger at a, at a doctor's office. But I'm like, why not? What are they going to do? They can't judge you because you don't, you're never going to, you might, you don't have to see them again if you don't want exactly. to. <laughs> and so that's the great thing, right? Absolutely. It's like karaoke, go do it where you don't know anyone. You never have to see them again. <laughs> I mean, this is and this is going to be completely a a gross example. But look, the reason we vomit and the reason we have diarrhea (laughs) is because our body is trying to get rid of something that shouldn't be there. Right. And I love that for me, you know, and I I am still seeing the same therapist I've been seeing for years. And I like every two years I go in for probably like six weeks for touch ups and I am vomiting all over the walls. (laughs) I'm getting so much stuff out. And this person doesn't judge me, knows my history, can help me, you know, gently, you know, not physically, but metaphorically can take me by the head and slowly change my perspective so that I can see things in a different way. And boom, I'm right back at baseline and ready to go again. So I, I just appreciate you giving us the time and the opportunity to speak to you. And, and, and again, I, everything that you're doing and talking about and your listeners, let's do everything we can to destigmatize um, mental and emotional challenges in, in our entire population, especially military and law enforcement. Definitely. Definitely. And I think for me, well, my biggest thing is my husband last night, he's like, you're always crying. I don't always cry, but there's like times where I just like hold everything in. I'm just whole. Thanks, honey. Yeah, right. And then I'm just like, <laughs> and then I feel so much better. I'm like, oh, great. Thanks. Thanks for letting me cry for a second. <laughs> no, I feel better. There you go. Good. Okay. Now, next good. week, you know, we might get there again, but no, it's, 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 it's amazing what therapy can do for us. Um, and it just, it doesn't just help you as a person, but it also helps your loved ones. Right. Cause they're trying to figure out how can we help. Right. But like you yeah. said, sometimes you need to help yourself. You need to be willing to help yourself in order to help the people around you. Thank you so much for, for coming onto the show. 
what episodes, what would top two or three from uh, LA Not So Confidential do my listeners need to start with? Uh, we get, I mean, we, we run the gamut on things. I think that paraphilias, which is one of our earliest episodes when we didn't know what we were doing, paraphilias is a great You're going one. Way back. Yeah. Paraphilias, uh, Stockholm syndrome, I think is really good. And Follet Adu, the madness of two. Those are good. And I, I love that last, well, this summer, beginning of this summer, we did a whole series on vintage LA noir crimes mm. from the late 1800s on up to the 40s, I believe. And it was kind of, and they are they're crazy. super crazy. They're crazy There's crimes. so much psychology there. And plus, we were able to talk a little bit more loosely because, like, everybody involved is dead. And <laughs> it's not too unethical for us to comment or um, have some conjecture about what was happening. But it's also kind of cool to look back at those times and talk about what was going on culturally and in the society and how certain populations were treated and, and things like that, you know, throwing women into mental institutions because they're being difficult. That's always super interesting to go back and, and look at. So not only do we do the contemporary stuff, but from here on out, every summer, we're going to do a vintage series. Oh, that's awesome. Cool. Well, I'm going to, Make sure I find those episodes and, and list them down in the show notes for my list. Thank listeners. you. Oh, thank Definitely. you so much. Okay, so can you tell people where to find you on social or wherever? Sure. We have a brand new, beautiful website that has a ton of information and we have linked every single guest spot we've ever done. So Military Murder will be on there where the listener will be able to go and listen to your show from our site. But please check that out. It's la-not-so-confidential.com. And then we're also on the big three for social media. On Instagram, we're at LA Not So Podcast. On Twitter, we're LA Not So Pod. And then Facebook, we are at LA Not So Confidential. And Scott always puts up a ton of great articles on Facebook and some really hilarious things that he likes to, you know, that tickles his funny bone and he thinks everyone else needs to <laughs> see it as well. So you get some fun stuff on Facebook. And Shiloh is a, a wonderful at social media and she has gotten, she's added an extra dimension to our show is that we follow up after every episode drop with a live stream on get vocal that takes place on uh, Saturday afternoon after we drop our episode on Wednesday. And we have just a blast. And we invite anybody to come listen to us on Get Vocal, ask questions. There's a bunch of interaction. People can jump in on screen if they want to interact with us or ask, ask questions. So please, you know, just Google LA Not So Confidential. You'll find all of the things there for us and come join the family. It's a great group of listeners. I appreciate it so much. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I want to personally thank you and your husband for your service and all of your listeners that are also former military personnel or veterans from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So what did you think? (laughs) I'm so happy to have had that opportunity to chat with Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott. No kidding. 
I actually got goosebumps while chatting with them because they were so relatable and their work with law enforcement and veterans, it was just such a perfect fit for our conversation today. The funny thing is that I had a chance encounter with them during CrimeCon house arrest about a year ago. So it's just funny how life works itself out. Anyway, go check out LA Not So Confidential right now. Subscribe to their show. And I am going to link their show in my show notes, specifically um, one or two of the episodes that they recommended you listen to first. If you loved this episode, feel free to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And be sure to go rate LA Not So Confidential as well. Just a few announcements. I am officially on TikTok and I've been covering new and old cases on there. So make sure that you follow me at Military Margot on TikTok. You will hear snippets of cases that I may not immediately cover on the podcast or I may never cover on the podcast. It's a good way to get your military murder fix midweek. If you cannot get enough of military murder, don't miss out. Head over to the Patreon fan club. If you sign up right now, you have access to the entire back catalog of bonus episodes, which at this point is 14 bonus episodes in like the lowest tier, all the way up to like 20, 21 or 22 episodes that you can listen to. You also get access to all previous and future episodes completely ad free. It's a great way to support this indie podcast. All right, this show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. The show's executive producers are Falcon 13, Nicole G, Alicia H, Tina S, and Ryan R. This month's newest associate producer is Sharon S. And this month's newest assistant producers are Tiffany W, Nora U, Steph D, Jamilia, Tanique, Nadine and Alyssa R. Thank you all so much from the bottom of my heart for your continued support. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. <laughs>